This podcast is not meant to be professional advice of any kind. It's meant to be informative and entertaining. If you make any changes to your life, see the appropriate professional before you do so. Hello and welcome to SuperAge. My name is David Harry Stewart. I'm the founder of Ageist. At SuperAge, we help you live better and become the best version of yourself. And who doesn't want a SuperAge? Welcome to episode 59 of the SuperAge podcast. Great to have you with us. This will be dropping on November the 10th, 2021. So we had quite an exciting evening last night. It was the first cohort of our Super Age Mastermind series, and it was tremendous. I, I have to say, it makes me so happy to get together with a group of people who are curious, intelligent, accomplished, and watch them ping off each other. It's really great. Um, and just to let everyone know who's um, interested in coming to a Super Age Mastermind, and they didn't get into this one because um, we, it was sold out. We, we really wanted to keep the group tight so everybody could get to know each other and it could be a very high-touch experience for everyone. We'll be doing this again in January towards the end of the month and we've already got a uh, waiting list going on that one. So that's great. It's just wonderful to see all this enthusiasm for people who want to live longer, live healthier, and you know discern what's the reality versus all the confusion that's out there if you Google anything. I mean, who thinks search is broken? I think I think search needs like a huge upgrade. Um, maybe that's just my bugbear. Um, speaking of getting to the facts of things, um, we have on the show today Dr. Rebecca Dunsmore. And what we're interested in is finding out about HRT. HRT meaning hormone replacement therapy, uh, menopause, the role of estrogen, uh, why do women have a much higher incidence of Alzheimer's than men? Is this related to menopause? Is it related to um, estrogen? What's the deal? Um, so we brought on an expert today. And I'm really looking forward to going into a deep dive of all these sort of things that I, I think there's a lot of confusing information out there, a lot of perhaps outdated information. We're going to find out what the science is, what the facts are, we're going to get with Dr. Rebecca Dunsmore in just a moment after a quick word from our sponsor. This week's show is brought to you by Cary Grand, my favorite skincare company. I love these people. I love their products. We're now moving into the fall, which is the beginning of, guess what, dry skin season. And I live in a place where the air is naturally really dry. And then you put the heat on, and so the humidity goes to, like, negative it's just horrible, right? There's just like no humidity. And what does that do to my hands and my lips? It's not good. So what I do is they have a product called Lip Whip, and I use the neutral version of that. And I put it on my lips in the morning and the night. And guess what? My lips aren't chapped anymore. I use another product called their Essential Hydrating Balm. And I rub that stuff on my hands before I go to bed. And I, you know, I wake up and my hands don't, they're not dry anymore. They make great products. It's all natural ingredients. As I say, you know, a lot with these guys, they really walk the talk. Female-owned, all natural ingredients, great products. Check them out, carrygrand.com, K-A-R-I-G-R-A-N.com. Hey, Dr. Rebecca, how are you today? I'm well, how are you? Oh, I'm doing great. 
Um, before we get started, tell me a little bit about your background. I'm happy to. So my name is Rebecca Dunsmore-Sue. Uh, I have a undergraduate degree from Bryn Mawr College in Philadelphia, which I did in anthropology, um, and then a medical degree from the University of Pennsylvania, where I also did a master's degree in epidemiology and biostatistics. And then I did all of my OBGYN residency training at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. After that, I moved out here to the West Coast. Uh, I live in Seattle now. I spent many years as faculty at the University of Washington, but now run a menopause clinic in Seattle. And I also function as the chief medical officer for Genev.com, which is an online um, website for women in midlife and menopause. Awesome. Thank you for that. You mm -hmm. said that much better than I could have. <laughs> <laughs> I've been asked that once or twice, as you can imagine. <laughs> okay. Wonderful. Um, so take me through a woman's hormonal journey, I guess we'll call this. So... Um, you know, from when she's a kid up until late age. What's, Happy to. What happens there? <laughs> well, I think it's good to frame how we talk about women's hormones with a background of what are they for? Okay. So, you know, this is not a value judgment, but our hormonal journey is based on reproduction. We are, after all, biological animals. So the transitions that the ovary goes through is all based on reproduction and reproductive potential. Um, when you are born, you're born with all the eggs you will ever have. In fact, they start to die off immediately. So in utero, there are millions of eggs. By the time you're born, there are hundreds of thousands of eggs. By the time you get to puberty, there are about 10,000 viable eggs. And at puberty, at, you start to cycle and release those eggs one by one. And a woman will release approximately three to 500 eggs over her lifetime before they're all gone. And she starts to go through menopause. How do hormones play into that? Well, as you start to go through puberty, you start to, the brain starts to pulsate with, um, with uh, pre-hormones that signal the ovary to develop eggs. And so those pulsations tell the ovary to make estrogen, which makes an egg grow and mature. And then mid-cycle, when that egg is mature and it starts to put out hormones of its own, then the brain has a pulse of what we call luteinizing hormone, which tells you to release that egg and then progesterone spikes. And so throughout a woman's cycling years, she's getting in the first half of her cycle or the first approximate two weeks, getting a sort of a buildup of estrogen. And in the second two weeks, a build of progesterone. And if she does not fertilize that egg and implant it, then everything drops off at the end and we get a bleed. So the drop of estrogen and progesterone at the end of the cycle causes a woman to menstruate. This works just great for the first 20 years or so that a woman is cycling. Those eggs are good, they're viable, they respond to the brain, the hormones are nice and even for most women, there are conditions where they aren't. But in general, that's a nice even cycle. Then we get to sort of a woman's, generally a woman's 40s, this can happen earlier in some women, later in others. And the eggs that are being recruited just aren't as great, as we like to say, they're a little older. They don't listen as well. So the brain has to pulsate more and the, the hormone spikes have to be higher to get that egg out. So what we often see in this time, which we call perimenopause, is that women are still cycling and having bleeding, but it might not happen exactly right on time. Or she might have a lot more symptoms surrounding it because the hormone spikes are so much bigger. And then as we run out of eggs, once there are no more viable eggs to respond to that brain signaling, 
then our hormones stop being produced by the ovary, progesterone and estrogen that is, and our periods stop and that's called menopause. It'd be nice if that all just happened very smoothly. Of course it doesn't. Um, the last couple of years of perimenopause can be very erratic in terms of bleeding. Women can have periods every three to six months. They can be very heavy because of these huge spikes of hormone. And then we, we label it menopause or the end of cycling when you've been 12 months without a period or 12 months without those hormones. And interestingly, that I always like to bring up and tell my patients is that while your estrogen and progesterone go down uh, with menopause, and so you're no longer making those from the ovary, you do continue to make testosterone at the same rate. That does not go down with menopause. Both for women and for men, our testosterone slowly decreases over the course of our lifetime from, our, from a peak in our 20s until our 80s. But there's no sudden change of, in testosterone at menopause. If if anything, in fact, we see a little bit more of it as women. It's why we start to get chin hairs and acne in the menopausal transition. We're seeing a little more of our testosterone. And that's because one of the things that having circulating estrogen does is it makes a molecule in our blood called sex hormone binding globulin go up. And that holds estrogen and testosterone bound in our blood so we can't read it. When the estrogen goes down, so does the sex hormone binding globulin, but the testosterone doesn't. So we actually see more of our testosterone. Okay, and then going forward, there uh, these levels stay the same then post-menopause right. for the duration of one's life? Yes, so after menopause, uh, basically there's a little bit of estrogen floating around because there are, other, or there are other things besides the ovary that make a little bit. So our fat cells make a little estrogen and our adrenal glands make a little estrogen. We basically have no progesterone after the menopause because there's no use for it. The whole role of progesterone in a cycling woman is to stabilize the uterine lining to implant a pregnancy. So that's not happening anymore. So we really don't have much of that. And then, like I said, the ovaries and the adrenal glands continue to make testosterone sort of at a low level through our menopause. Gotcha. Okay. So now why would someone go into something like HRT? So hormone replacement theory. Actually, let's start with what is HRT? I love to talk about hormone replacement therapy. It's what I do every day. Um, hormone replacement therapy is the replacing of the, the endocrine factors, the estrogen and progesterone that have gone missing from a woman's body. And there are a lot of myths and, and things out there about how this needs to be done safely. What I tell all my patients is that there's a lot of chatter around hormone replacement therapy, a lot of fear mongering, a lot of only I can do this for you the right way. In reality, hormone replacement therapy can be done very safely for most women with your physician. And it should always involve FDA regulated products because that way we know exactly what dose we're giving you and can adjust appropriately. Well, let's talk about dosing. Mm -hmm. So what are, are, are you doing like hormone levels and there's like somewhere you want to match? How do you, how do, you do this? That's a really good question because I think a lot of people think that we need to do hormone levels in order to replace hormone. The answer is no. When a woman comes to me in menopause and she's symptomatic, I don't need to do a hormone level because I know what it is. It's very, very low. There's nothing that a blood test is going to tell me that her symptoms don't tell me. As I like to say to my patients, a thorough history and exam is much more cost effective than a whole bunch of lab draws that aren't going to tell me anything different. Um, so we treat based on symptoms. 
And we don't titrate hormone levels to a particular lab draw because for example, in a normally cycling woman who's premenopausal, the normal range of estrogen is between about 12 and 200. Whoa. I don't know where to aim in there <laughs> okay. with a hormone replacement. I don't know when she's going to feel better. Some women feel better at a estrogen of 20 and some people it takes to 100. So doing a level doesn't tell me if she's better. She tells me if she's better. And that's well, how we adjust hormone therapy. Suppose, because um, I really like to quantify things. I'm Everybody sorry. does. I love to quantify things too. And there's just, <laughs> there's something unquantifiable. About well, menopause. well let, let's say that, um, for instance, um, you, I was a woman and you did a hormone draw on me at 30. Mm -hmm. And then I come to you at 48. I'm symptomatic. And would having like sort of this dot in the, you know, this data point saying like, here, everything was happy at this level. Would ah, that be something you'd aim for? No. So here's no. the nifty thing, because you're saying I got a blood draw on you at 30, but did I get it in the first week of your cycle? The second oh, of week course. of your cycle, right. the third week of your cycle, or the fourth okay. week of your cycle, all of which have different hormone levels for women. All of those are different estrogen levels. So, and we'd feel fine throughout it, right? So women feel fine in it within a huge range of estrogen. So how are you, I mean, if I have a low vitamin D, I mean, I know like what my vitamin D right. level is. I know what it mm -hmm. should be and I know how to right. change it. I got, exactly. a, I got a data point. I got a target. I know what to do. Right. How do you do this? I talk to women. I talk to them and ask them how they're feeling and we treat their symptoms. Gotcha. Because that's really the only marker of when we've gotten to the point where a woman feels better is the marker of us using enough estrogen. Okay. Um, so let's talk about things outside of feeling better. Mm -hmm. um, what sort of things as these, you know, as it, progesterone goes to zero, estrogen mm -hmm. goes very, very low. Um, what are the other effects on the body from this? That's a really good question because I think um, we have lost sight of talking about the benefits of estrogen for, for a woman um, over the years with all the fear mongering around cancer, which we should also discuss separately. But estrogen is actually a really healthy hormone for women. So we know that estrogen is active in basically every part of the body. It's active in the brain, it's active in the cardiovascular system, in the bones, it's active in the genital region, obviously. And losing estrogen has significant impacts on women as they age. Um, for example, let's, talk, let's start with the cardiovascular system. So we for years knew that women didn't really start having their heart attacks until after menopause. And so there were a lot of theories why this was. There was this big Framingham nurses study that came out looking at many, many nurses and sort of tracking their progress over the years. And we were seeing that those women who started hormones right when they went into menopause were also not getting heart attacks. So it was obviously protecting their hearts. And we asked the question, why? what's happening there? And what it seems is that estrogen is an anti-inflammatory molecule. So at the cardiovascular system in the blood vessels, it's increasing pliability, reducing plaque. So it's keeping those things healthier and younger in that sense. Um, but it also um, alters the HDL-LDL ratio a little bit. So women's HDL is a little bit higher before they go through menopause and actually goes down and their LDL rises with menopause. So we switch our lipid profile a little bit to look a little more masculine when we go through menopause. So it's a heart healthy hormone if it's something you've had all along and continued 
there is some data showing that if you go through menopause and then wait 10 years and then start estrogen, it's actually unhealthy for the heart. And so the big important thing there is that you've already then made those cardiovascular changes. Your vessels have become less flexible. You've built plaque in your vessels. And then estrogen has the opposite effect because it also slightly increases, increases blood clot risk. So you can put clots on top of plaques and actually have strokes and heart attacks. So a lot of the benefit of estrogen is continuous estrogen. It's not, it doesn't work. You can't start later on. Uh, at the bone, estrogen helps us keep calcium in our bones. It helps prevent osteoporosis uh, for women. And it's actually a really, really good bone medicine. It's actually one of the things that the FDA has approved it for is for maintenance of bone health. In terms of the brain, um, there are a couple different pathways to go down with brain health. Um, one is just the general symptoms of menopause. A lot of women experience what we call brain fog. So they just have some word searching difficulty and some memory changes as they start to transition through menopause. Um, that does not last forever. Um, someone what, that I we, know. I, I want to know, why is that? What, what's happening there? Well, that's a good question. I don't know that we fully know. There are actually trackable changes in brain function that you can see. Dr. Lisa Moscone, who's the head of the Wild Cornell Alzheimer's Research Group, did a brain function study, which I think they published in Nature uh, in the last year. And what they did was they can actually track brain function changes in women going through menopause. The nice thing is they also checked on them a couple years later and they recovered those brain functions with, with or without hormone. So it's just something about the brain transitioning how it functions. Estrogen is active in the serotonin system, in the norepinephrine system, in the dopamine system. It's active in the memory centers. It's active everywhere in the brain. So there's something that's going on as we transition out of this state. And I, our brain comes to a new steady state, but there's definitely a lot of women really notice that. The other thing that happens during this time is because of, because of the effect on the brain is sleep gets disturbed. So women get disturbed sleep as they transition through menopause. Usually what they come to me and tell me is not that they can't fall asleep, they can all fall asleep. But at two or three o'clock in the morning, they wake up, they're up for two or three hours, their minds are racing, and they're just getting this very scattered sleep. Um, and we think that has a little bit more to do with progesterone. Progesterone is a bit of a calming hormone at the level of the brain. Um, but estrogen too, because women are often waking with hot flashes and then they're up and they can't get back to sleep. And, you know, sleep has tons of downstream, um, complications, including brain health, but also weight and energy and all sorts of things. And then got lost a bit for a minute there. Oh yes. We've talked about the brain. We've talked about the cardiovascular system and the bones. Um, what else is estrogen good for? Well, it's good for our skin. It's good for our hair. It keeps our vaginal tissues young and healthy. It has a lot of just general benefit for the female body. Um, why would someone choose, I mean, and I, I've interviewed people who've said, well, I'm not a good candidate for HRT or it doesn't mm. work for me. Right. Because everything you're telling me is, this seems like Sounds a really like good, <laughs> seems like a really good thing to do. Um, why not? So there are a couple categories of people for whom hormone replacement therapy is not a good choice. Um, category number one, women who've had breast cancer. Mm. So if you've had breast cancer and that breast cancer often is hormone sensitive, then we are increasing your risk of recurrence by adding estrogen or progesterone back into the system. And so we just don't do that. Um, another category is people who already have cardiovascular disease. So if you already have known cardiovascular disease, and then we have this blood clot risk that we add on top, we can actually increase your risk of a cardiovascular event. 
And then the third category are often women who've had a clotting disorder or had a blood clot in the past or have a strong family history or a genetic reason why they might clot their blood. We're very hesitant to add estrogen to that system because it does slightly increase blood clot risk. And when you're doing HRT, are you adding both estrogen and progesterone or just estrogen? So that depends on whether or not a woman still has a uterus. So as I said back in the beginning, progesterone's role in the cycling woman is to stabilize the uterine lining to get ready to implant a pregnancy. In hormone replacement therapy, its role is to keep that uterine lining from growing under the influence of estrogen. If you give estrogen alone to a woman with a uterus, her lining will grow and grow and grow. She'll have a ton of bleeding, but eventually it will also grow into endometrial cancer or uterine lining cancer. Progesterone stops that from happening. So if a woman has a uterus, we give both. If a woman doesn't have a uterus, she doesn't actually need the progesterone arm. We usually start with just the estrogen. In rare cases, I might add progesterone if sleep is a huge issue for her and we want to try it to see if it really calms the brain. But in general, we start with estrogen and then see if it's needed. This not sleeping thing, Mm. um, it it sounds like, uh, I mean, I know that if if you're not getting deep sleep, your brain's not being cleared out. Your chances of Alzheimer's, dementia goes through the roof. Yep. Uh, So how are you addressing that? So sleep is really key for women, um, especially as we age. And it's not just the Alzheimer's dementia risk, which is higher in women, as we know. But it's also the fact that if you're not getting deep sleep, you're reducing your basal metabolic rate. All women tend to start gaining weight during this time in this transition. It's probably a lot to do with their lack of sleep. You can go, you can lose about 400 kilocalories a day in your basal metabolic rate if you're not sleeping well. Um, It tends to generate a little bit of an insulin resistance from that lack of deep sleep. Your cortisol never really goes all the way down. You know, you don't get to that really restful place. So sleep is really key. Um, How do we address it? Well, I address it in a couple of different ways. Um, I address it with the one proven therapy for sleep that's been shown in studies to actually work, which is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, Um, either using an app or an online system, or they can even work in person with someone. But the apps and the online uh, versions are actually quite good and can really help people track their sleep habits and make changes that help them to sleep more deeply. And then sometimes I address it with hormone therapy. If that's one of their big symptoms and they want to try hormone therapy for it. Um, What's help, help me out here. What is cognitive behavioral sleep therapy? What what does that look like? Cognitive behavioral therapy is a style of therapy that works on behaviors, recognizing behaviors and changing them um, is basically the tenet of cognitive behavioral therapy. There's a specific subset called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Um, And what that does is it very specifically tracks behaviors around sleep about when you go to bed, what you do when you wake in the middle of the night, what things you you include in your bedtime ritual, what do you do when you wake in the morning, all these types of things. Gotcha. And then it works with you on how to adjust those to improve your sleep. I see. And there's a great app um, that people can get for free called CBTI Trainer, I believe. Um, It was made at the VA for veterans with PTSD. So it's free to everybody. It's in your app store. You can just download it and give it a try. Oh, Wonderful. So, um, in in my world, I would call this good sleep hygiene. Yes, it's okay. a little bit more structured than good sleep hygiene. Okay. Um, there are actually things that it recommends in terms of like if you wake in the middle of the night, you actually get out of bed, don't check the time, go to a quiet place, and actually sit up. There, you know, it's a little bit more, but yeah, it starts with good sleep hygiene. Yeah. 
Gotcha. Okay. So um, let's talk about this other hormone that you mentioned, mm -hmm. testosterone. Sure. Um, and I've been, so when is it, is there ever a good idea for a woman to be supplementing testosterone? So that's a really great question. I'm glad you bring it up because there's a lot of what I like to call predatory practice out there, where people are selling women testosterone as a fountain of youth. Um, testosterone is an anabolic steroid. It will make you feel great. Mm. And then it'll wear off and you'll need more. And then you'll mm. feel great for a little while and it'll wear off and you need more. And so what we end up seeing is women getting into really high levels of testosterone, basically male levels of testosterone, and getting all the joy that comes with that, including facial hair and acne. Their voices can deepen. They can grow an Adam's apple. They can actually grow a small penis from their clitoris. Um, and lots of, but also on the inside, they're getting cardiovascular disease on level of male men. Um, testosterone is an important female hormone. Um, as I mentioned before, it doesn't really go down with menopause. I mean, it goes on a slow drift throughout our lifetimes, but you haven't suddenly lost it. People assume as we go through menopause and there's often a change in libido that it's testosterone causing that change. In fact, it's probably a much more complex thing that has to do with psychological factors, how we feel about our bodies, how we feel about our aging, uh, how we feel about our relationships and all those things that are causing that drift down in libido. But there are some small studies that have shown that replacing testosterone at very low female physiologic levels can give a slight boost to libido in women. So you can increase their sexually satisfac satisfying events by about two per month over time. <laughs> And can we put, I know you don't like to say numbers, but can we put number, can we put a number on that? Like what, what's the dosage? So, well, that's a really interesting question. So we're having to use male dosed products at female levels because there is no female dosed uh, testosterone product available in the U.S. that's FDA approved. So we're still struggling with that as physicians. A lot of people are given like compounds or pellets. These are dangerous, um, very hard to manage, and you can get really high testosterone levels. Those of us who practice in this space typically take a male dosed product. So it comes in little packets of five milligrams each. And for a man, that five milligrams would be a one, one daily dose. And we take that and we have women use one tenth of that a day. So about uh, five, you know, one tenth of five milligrams, 500 micrograms. Um, we're just, you know, we're taking it down and trying to keep it in the female physiologic range. It's hard for us to do, you know, it's, it's something that those of us who work in the sexual function space really struggle with because we think there's some decent data for this, but it's really hard to safely replace in women. This is not something that should be routinely replaced in women because it is hard to manage. You have to get blood tests regularly to make sure we're not bumping you too high into the male range. And it's just something that has a role, but a very restricted role. Um, and how long would a woman, is there a time limit that one can be on HRT or is it a lifetime? That's a, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so interestingly enough, um, we talked over the years about risks of HRT. So a lot of women believe that HRT is going to cause them breast cancer or give them heart attacks. These mm. are the two risks that we tend to talk about. Mm -hmm. I like to dispel those risks. First of all, the breast cancer risk. I like to talk about the two hormones separately. Estrogen. Estrogen replacement does not cause breast cancer. And I shout that from the rooftops. We have many studies that tell us that estrogen replacement does not cause breast cancer. It does not increase the incidence. The Women's Health Initiative, that big study that came out in 2002 that scared everybody away from hormones, 
they continued their estrogen only arm and then they actually published the results of the 18 year follow-up last year. And they showed no increased risk in breast cancer in their women taking estrogen alone. Now, obviously we talked about the fact that women who have a uterus also need progesterone. The Women's Health Initiative showed that there was a slight increased incidence of breast cancer in progesterone users or progestin users. They used Provera um, and they stopped the study for that. They also followed up at last year, 18 years later, and they can still see that slight incidence bump. And I'm talking slight, one additional case of breast cancer in about a thousand women years, mm. which is the, how we study it. Mm-hmm. But they saw no increased risk in breast cancer mortality. So the good news is this is low grade. But again, that was Provera. It's not what we tend to use now. Nowadays, we tend to use micronized progesterone, which is a little more body identical, as we like to call it. I use that those words because that separates it from the marketing of bioidentical, which is generally the marketing of compounds, which are less safe. Um, I talk about body identical, which are estradiol and micronized progesterone, which are the molecules that the body used to make but FDA regulated. And when we use micronized progesterone, we don't tend to see that bump in breast cancer risk. We have one big study out of France um, that has looked at 40,000 women on a micronized progesterone prescription out to five years, and they saw no increased risk in breast cancer rates on that particular um, compound. I tell my patients, I can't say for sure it doesn't increase your breast cancer risk. I think there's more study to be done on this progesterone, but I certainly don't think it increases it significantly one in eight women get breast cancer. That's our baseline rate. So, you know, women on hormone replacement therapy are going to get breast cancer. One in eight of them will. There's nothing we do about that. If you get it, you have to stop. But I tell people there's a difference between association and causation. And I think we've assumed a causation that really isn't there for many years. Um, And then we talked about cardiovascular risk and the Women's Health Initiative also made us worry about cardiovascular risk, both stroke and heart attack. What we know from that and other studies is that the risks of estrogen and progesterone are based on when you start, not how long you use it. So if you start within five years of that last period, you can use your hormone replacement fairly indefinitely without increasing your risk. The risk of heart attack, stroke, all those things are based on when you start. And women who start hormone replacement therapy within five years of their last period actually reduce their cardiovascular risk. We talked about that. They also slightly reduce their colon cancer risk and they reduce their all-cause mortality over time. Um, the North American Menopause Society is really clear. There is no set stop date for hormone therapy. You can use it as long as it's functional for you. In my practice, I see three different patterns really. A small group of my patients use it just to manage symptoms around the transition to menopause, two to five years, they taper off, they feel fine, we're good. Another subset use it sort of through the age of retirement. They're very functional women. They don't like what it does to their brain when they come off their estrogen. They don't like the hot flashes in the workplace. They want nothing to do with it. They sleep better on it. So we use it until they're 65, 70, 75, and then we taper off and they do fine. And then I have a small subset of women who feel better on hormone and they're going to die with that hormone in their hands. And that's fine too. (laughs) I'm happy to continue that journey with them as long as they don't have any other risk factors. They haven't developed breast cancer. They haven't developed heart disease or anything else that would mean that they need to come off. Let's, do you have an opinion about why Alzheimer's risk is so much higher with women than with men? Um, I have a lot of opinions. I don't know how based in science they are. That's okay. Um, I'm just curious. I can tell you what we know from the data 
and what we suspect. I don't know if we have the full story yet. Um, and we mentioned Dr. Moscone, she's working on this at Wild Cornell uh, Medical School. And I think she's probably on the pathway of discovering exactly what's going on in the brain. But I think there are a couple of things about estrogen that we need to think about. Like I said, estrogen is an anti-inflammatory molecule and it's anti-inflammatory everywhere, including in the brain. And so I think there's a certain amount of that anti-inflammatory effect that is beneficial for women. Um, I think that sleep has a lot to do with it. You know, when women are transitioning through menopause, we're talking about five, 10 years of disrupted sleep. That's a lot of impact in the brain. And I think that has a lot to do with it. Wow. Okay. So I'm going to paraphrase here and tell me if I got <laughs> this wrong, because I'm probably uh -huh. going to get it wrong. But it seems like HRT is, unless you fall into one of these groups where you, mm -hmm. you know, you have a pre-existing condition, you can't do it. Right. This seems like a really good thing all around. If, if for nothing else, just the sleep, right. like not sleeping well for 10 years, like, oh my gosh, that's going to cause all kinds of problems. Um, right. Um, I don't disagree with you. You know, I think we have been told a scary story about mm. hormone replacement therapy. Um, and before the Women's Health Initiative published, that was not the story we were telling. We were telling women it was great for them. And those of us who've been working in this space a long time have gotten back to that story for the most part. You know, I think that was the Women's Health Initiative and the way it was published and the way it was reported was a bit of a blip in that story. Um, the way I like to think about it is that, you know, menopause probably had a function when it started, you know, very few species go through menopause. It's us and a couple of great whales. Um, that's pretty much it. Um, and there's a whole sort of grandmother theory about why we would do this. It's, and the theory is that the grandmothers are the repository of knowledge within these societies and risking them in childbirth as they age doesn't make sense. So they stop being able to reproduce so they can continue to you know, pass on knowledge. That's a great theory. There's no way to prove that, um, but it sounds good. I like it. Um, <laughs> But um, the one thing I do think about is, you know, when menopause is fine and functional, if you're going to live to be 65, you know, you got 10 years to survive your menopause, you're going to be okay. We live to 95, 100, 105 now. And that's a long time. That's almost half your life without the hormones that sort of keep things going. So I think that we need to adjust like, I think people have been fed this line that it's better to just go through this natural and normal transition. Well, it's natural and normal, but so is dying by 65. We're in a different place now. So we need to think about our long-term health and estrogen may actually help with that long-term health. Not everybody needs it. People do live to 85, 90, 95 without hormone replacement therapy, but it can be beneficial for many women. So I'm going to give you another scenario. Mm -hmm. um, say somebody comes to you um, and they're non-symptomatic. They're not having any of the sort of sleep disorders, mood stuff, weight gain. Mm -hmm. But they come to you and they say, huh, you know, I've, I've read this stuff about hormones um, and long-term brain health. Mm -hmm. um, should I be doing this not so much for my comfort, my, you know, my current status, but my long, you know, my longevity, essentially? That's a really good question. And I do have those patients come to me. Um, the answer, if they're just talking about brain health is, I don't know if we know for sure. 
We have some studies that point at increased exposure to hormone over a woman's lifetime being protective of her brain and reducing the risk of dementia and Alzheimer's dementia specifically. And in that, we're talking about a couple of studies. There's a observational study called the Cache County Study out of Utah, where they just looked at this county and watched everybody age. And one of the publications that they did was they counted up women's years on estrogen. They counted their pregnancies, their breastfeeding, their hormone use, all those things, and showed that women with more estrogen exposure had a reduced risk of Alzheimer's disease. And then there's Dr. Moscone's study, um, right. which recently published, which looks at um, women who've had exposure to contraceptives or hormone replacement therapy, things like that. And the more exposure showed um, decreased risk. Right. There are other studies that show that HRT increased the risk of dementia. The oh, Women's Health Initiative showed an increased risk in dementia. Um, now, there are some issues with how that study was designed. A lot of those women were 10 or more years into menopause when they were started on hormones. There's the whole idea of blood clotting and could there be small strokes in the brain. There are a lot of issues, but I, I have to be honest with these patients and say there's data on both sides. Mm -hmm. Some data says that it's harmful. Some data that says that it's helpful. My take on all that data is I think there's more help than harm if we use it correctly. If you start within five years of that menopause, if you take it continuously, if we use it through the skin rather than orally, because through the skin, there's a lower risk of blood clot. There are ways that we can do it safely. And I am happy to prescribe someone hormone therapy for health benefit, as long as they understand that that is actually what we consider an off-label use. Hormone therapy is FDA approved to treat hot flashes and protect your bones. That's it. We know all these other things. So we can have that conversation and do the prescribing based on that. But definitely, you know, we're, we're in a somewhat of a gray area. Okay. I got a random one for you. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I've had some questions from, um, some of the people in our community about, um, intermittent fasting, mm. um, stress, um, and women, um, how they may react differently to this. And I'm one, and, and so I want to know about that. And then does that change um, with changes in estrogen levels? Or is there, do we not know anything about that? No, we do know, we do know, we do have some data on that. Um, so what I tell people, I like to sort of back up and say, remember we were talking about sleep and that metabolic rate change. Yeah. Part of that discussion was that when you're not sleeping and your cortisol is not dropping to its lowest point in the middle of the night, like it's supposed to, then you end up putting yourself into a state of somewhat insulin resistance. So not fully pre-diabetic, but there's just a little more insulin resistance, which means you don't process sugar as well. And so we know that that happens. So step one is not so much hormone therapy directly changing that resistance, although there is probably some interaction between estrogen and cortisol that we don't fully understand. And so that is contributing. So estrogen can help. But the biggest thing is when I start someone on hormone therapy and they start sleeping again, then we're improving their metabolism. Does it mean that I start hormone therapy and the weight drops off? No, unfortunately not. <laughs> um, one thing we know from all of our studies is that women who are perimenopausal or menopausal can lose weight, but it takes a lot longer and a lot more work, unfortunately. Some of these metabolic changes that occur are permanent. Um, intermittent fasting is an interesting question. I think it can be very helpful for people who are insulin resistant. And so for some women in menopause, it is a, a structure that can work for them. Um, what I tell all of my patients, however, is what you need to do long-term is make changes that you're gonna be able to sustain. 
So if this is something that feels good to you and natural and normal, and it's something you can sustain long-term, great. That's a great thing to try. But if you are struggling through each morning to not eat until 11, then this is probably not the right pathway for you. This is, you know, there's a, there's another way for you and everybody is different. You know, there's not one diet plan that works for everybody. People need to find what works for their body and their lifestyle and their system and understand the underpinnings of their eating. Um, a lot of what I do in my clinical practices, talk to women about like, what are you eating and why are you eating? it? You know, is this emotional eating? Is this bored eating? You know, what are the things that we need to maybe think about and how do we substitute those things out? But I, I just want to go back to that, the relationship between it, the, uh, the cortisol question. Mm-hmm. So um, does intermittent fasting in women cause a cortisol response that doesn't happen in men? We don't know that um, I th- is my answer. I don't okay. know um, okay. is, is the more complex answer. I think we haven't studied it well enough yet to really understand how that might differ between women and men. Um, I think that a lot more depends on other impacts on cortisol. So whether it be sleep or the drop in estrogen, which also impacts cortisol levels, um, probably than the intermittent fasting itself. Gotcha. Okay. Complicated questions. Everybody's different. It is a complicated question. The thing is, <laughs> cortisol is not a simple thing. I mean, it's <laughs> the way our whole endocrine system is interrelated is very complex and not always all that well understood. You know, I think we we think of the endocrine system as multiple different systems. Think of the thyroid, the adrenals, the ovaries. The, but these are one big system that all interrelates in a way that we haven't fully defined. Gotcha. Um Wow. This is like, I love how information dense this is. <laughs> I am a font of information, if nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, you've done a really good job on all of my random questions. I appreciate it. Uh, so what about, I'm just going to give you one more and then I'm going to release you. So <laughs> the idea, um, I'm, I'm a big proponent of strength training, um, mm. especially with um, for women who seem, there seems to be this delusion that they're going to turn into Arnold Schwarzenegger um, mm-hmm. without anabolics. I don't think that's going to happen. No. no Although if you're no. getting testosterone pellets, that may. So well, uh, right. <laughs> yeah, that's an anabolic, right. Right. Yep. Um, so um, if you're not doing that, right. so talk to me about, um, is there any count, counter indication to strength training for women? Um, no, strength training no. is key for women. Okay, strength great. training is key for women for a multitude of reasons. One, one of the things that the drop in estrogen also does is it makes it harder for women to maintain their lean muscle mass. And as we mm. all know, lean muscle mass burns calories. Yep. So you have to build that muscle mass back. Even if we put you on estrogen, you still have to build it back right. and maintain it. That's just you know basic health. The second reason is muscle strength tra- training and the big muscles supports your bone. So as women mm-hmm. go through menopause and they head towards osteoporosis, strength t- training in the core muscles, the upper body, the lower body, it's key for maintaining bone health and bone strength. And it also helps with balance and strength long-term so that even if you do get into a region of osteopenia or osteoporosis, if you have strong muscles and good balance, you're going to be better off and less likely to fall and, and break a bone. Are you having your patients do um, bone density scans, DEXA scans, things like that? 
Oh, yes. So in my patients, I do do DEXA scans. Um, the current national recommendations are to do a DEXA at 65. I often do it much earlier than that because I feel like by 65, we kind of missed the boat. Yeah. Um, so I often will use them in my newly menopausal women who have a strong family history and who want to use that information to help them decide about hormone replacement therapy. So that's a good point to do it. I certainly use it anytime someone has a fragility fracture. So like a wrist fracture or a rib fracture. Um, and then in general, I tend to get one somewhere in a woman's fifties, just so we know where she is in the pathway to osteoporosis. And so she can start to make excellent changes um, early on. Um, the recommendation to do it at 65 is really more about the medications. So the bisphosphonates and the MABs and the medications that can rebuild bone. But if we can prevent that bone loss, even better. Well, I think we went another trajectory, right? Like what's, right. what's the Delta? What's the change? That's the, that's the important thing, right? Right. Exactly. And I think the other thing I tell all my patients is I don't care what your bone mass is. You should be taking vitamin D and, and getting enough calcium in your diet or between diet and supplement and magnesium support those bones start, you know, we should be starting that in our thirties because women build bone until their thirties and then they start to lose. Yeah. Well, like with all of us, as you right. get older, all this stuff just gets harder, right? <laughs> you gotta work it harder at it. Uh, this is tremendous. Um, so anything you want to tell people, what is it? Um, what do we want to leave them with? What have we left out? Is there some critical thing here? I think the one thing that I tell all my patients and I try to sort of shout from the rooftops is that when the Women's Health Initiative came out in 2002 and everybody got scared away from hormones, it left this huge vacuum in the market. It left a huge vacuum where all of us physicians were saying, nope, we don't do that anymore. And so people stepped up and stepped into the breach and started promoting things they called safer or better or more natural compounds, what they call bioidenticals. These are not safer. They're not more natural. They're made from the same synthetic hormone from the same pharmaceutical companies, just ground up and mixed into new bases that are unregulated, therefore unregulated in dose. This is not a safe pathway. Please come talk to us. There are plenty of us out there who are North American menopause certified. We will happily talk to you about hormones. We, we are not afraid of them, but we use FDA regulated products, which are safe and body identical. Right on. Um, as they say, don't, uh, what is your, uh, how does your oath go? Do no, do no harm. First do no harm. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, Dr. Rebecca, you're awesome. Um, <laughs> it's been it, really wonderful talking to you. Yeah. Really appreciate and I think it. the more we can get information out to women that this is a pathway they can explore safely with their physician, the better, you know, and a lot of physicians are still stuck back in 2002. They don't understand all the data that's come since. So find yourself a doctor who has actually read it all. Sounds great. All right. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. Take care. Bye now. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. And apologies for the compression that uh, the internet decided to put on that audio. A little scratchy. You know, sometimes technology works and sometimes it works less well. <laughs> Thanks for bearing with us on that. Everyone, um, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating. Please share with your friends. And you guys have been leaving comments. I love that. And you've been sending me emails. I love that even more. David at superage.com. Whatever you got, bring it on. If you got a question for Dr. Dunsmore, I will make sure that she gets to it and we can answer it on the air next week. Next week, we got another great show. Wishing everyone has a great week this week. Stay happy, stay comfortable. See you then.
Thank you for joining us on the Super 8 Show today. Great to have you with us. You know, as I was finishing this recording, I was speaking to one of the folks who work here, and I was mentioning, hey, I've been using BrainTap and, you know, what Dr. Patrick Porter was talking about. And she says to me, that's what's different about you. You're so mellow these days. <laughs> so after the show, the BrainTap technology folks contacted us, and they are giving all of our listeners a 20% discount. So if that's interesting to you, check it out. Link in the show notes, and you don't have to go to the top of the mountain to get your theta. <laughs> um, thanks, everybody, for joining us today. Hey, please leave us a rating. We love those, and they've been coming in. They're great. Please leave us a comment. Um, if you would like to reach me directly, David at superage.com, and I'll get back to you directly. I promise. I do it with everyone who writes me. Um, next week, we've got another great show. Looking forward to having you with us then. And hey, check us out on Instagram. We are Ageist. And if you're not signed up for our newsletter, it's the best one out there every Thursday. We just really sweat bullets to make it great. Sign up for it and get it into your email box. Everyone, have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Bye now.